The Meet for TCAS is brought to you in part by SoneLab, a recording studio in East Hampton, Massachusetts. Offering recording, mixing, and mastering of all styles of music, we even master podcasts. Email info at sonelab.com for more information. That's info at sonelab.com. That's the record button. Have we started? We have started. So, this is the Meet for TCAST. You might always start like that. Who knows? Hey, everybody. Hello. Thanks for joining us for Season 3, Episode 3. Of the Meet for TCAST. The Meet for TCAST. I'm Mark Allen Miller. I'm Elizabeth McDuffie, and we've got a special episode for you tonight. This is... From our 100,000 Poets, Artists, and Musicians for Change event that we had on September 25th. It was a Zoom event that was broadcast on Facebook Live. And actually, if you go to the Meet for Tea page on Facebook, it is in the videos section there as well. It is. You can view it. You can listen to it. We provide you with content in multiple forms. But seeing that you're here now... Pods are pretty good. You're here to listen to it here. So so thanks for joining us. The readers in order, and I should add also one of the really brilliant things about doing Zoom is we, we got to have some authors that aren't local. Yeah. West Coast people. So that was cool. And do make sure to stay till the end because our featured reader brings a little special something something. Sean Gunderson and Sandra Ginsberg. Yeah. So that's pretty awesome. A bit of music as well, basically. So our readers are Kristen Bach, D. Dina Friedman, Gail Brandeis, Linda Kraus, Marissa Perez, Jessamyn Smythe, and our featured reader, the local beat poet laureate, no less. That's right. Tommy Twilight. And if you go back to season three, episode two, Jessamyn Smythe was our guest. And we have a long and fascinating, multifaceted conversation about her upcoming book, due out very soon, Gilgamesh Wilderness. Yeah. And Tommy was our guest not too long ago as well. That's right. So if you dig what you hear here, there's more to dig. There is. So I suppose before we get into this reading, we should ask you, as we always do, if you like this podcast, go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review with writing. Or on any podcast app that you happen to use, if you can subscribe, if they give you the option to rate, of course, that's awesome too, and tell your friends. We do read the reviews on the podcast. Yeah, because we're honored when we get a nice review from people, so we'd like to share it with you all. We'd also love to hear your voices, so if you felt like leaving us a little short voice memo telling us which episode was your favorite, people you'd like us to have on that we haven't yet, anything like that. You can do that through anchor.fm forward slash meet for TCAST. There is a little voice memo recorder, or you can record one on your phone and just email it to meetfortcast at gmail.com and we'll check it out. That's right. Also, keep your eye on the Meet for TCAST Facebook page. I've been running six-word story challenges. 
And if we like your six-word story, we read it on the podcast. So how fun is that? Do we have any new ones for this episode? We do not. Okay, so not this time, but usually... Stay posted. Yeah. In two weeks, we will have more. One final thing before we jump into the readers, I think one final thing, is if you also want to support us, you can support us through uh, anchor.fm. There's a support page there, or you can go to meetfortea.com, and there is a donate page there, or you can go to meetfortea.com and buy a PDF or an issue of the magazine or a subscription. You know, the PDFs are $5. The issues average... 135 to 140 pages in length. Bang for buck. Bang for buck. A lot of bang. You could have a whole collection of meat for tea all the way down to the very first issue we offer on the website. Hey, the holidays are coming in. A subscription might make a nice gift for somebody too. Hint, 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 hint. It'd make a perfect (laughs) gift. I think so. Well, of course we think so. But we appreciate you listening this far. We should probably jump right into the... 100,000 Poets, Artists, Musicians, and Change 2021 Meet for Tea event, edited for this podcast. Coming That's at right. You. It was on the 25th of September. And we're actually starting with you, Elizabeth. That's right. I have to introduce the thing. I might read one of my poems, too. Yeah. There's a chance. Might. I think you might. We'll have to find out. Hi, everybody. So nice to see you all. Welcome to 2021's uh, 100,000 Poets, Artists, and Musicians for Change, the Meet for Tea edition. Yes, and this event is celebrating a full decade of 100,000 Poets, and I've been doing them every year for the full decade. I just want to say hello and welcome. I'm going to read a very quick thing. Hard for me to lay hands on a lot of my poetry because we're still unpacking post- house fire, which some of you know about. So this is an oldie that I asked a bunch of people to provide words for me and then made the poem. It's called nesting. I'm building a nest to call my home out of mussel shells and seagull bones. I'm building this home behind a dune. I'm sure back here, there'll be plenty of room and shelter from sea breezes and tides. A lining of feathers keeps it warm inside. My children have all grown, and so this home is my very own. There's only room for me in my avian home by the sea. So here I'll live out my days till I'm an ancient crone. I'll wander the shores by the light of day, searching and digging till I find the buried seal hide I know is mine. Then one day when I'm withered and frail, I'll slip the hide on and zip it right up and slide into the sea where my sulky sisters have been awaiting me. So Kristen, do you want to just jump right in? There we go. Kristen Bach. All right. Hi, everybody. Hi. (laughs) Home, Elizabeth. (laughs) I'm glad you liked it. So yeah. Hey, everybody. Um, Thanks again for inviting me, you guys. Um, It's becoming a tradition that I really look forward to every year. And um, I'm happy to kick off the event and be among so many cool artists. And um, I'm just going to read straight through some poems from uh, my forthcoming book called Glass Bikini, which is coming out in December from uh, Tupelo Press. And I'm going to start with the title poem. Um, It's called On the Day of Your Wedding. On the day of your wedding, I'm beating a dead monkey on the cathedral stairs. 
I'm wearing my hat with the horns, a gown of red arrows that point straight down. On the day of your wedding, I'm riding a carousel horse in a glass bikini cut from the radioactive plains of the forbidden zone. Covered in katydids, licking oblivion from a dinner plate with my gold leaf tongue, sitting and speaking of love as if it could save us. Here is my full set of wax teeth. Here is your dress like a bandage. Here, my monkey paws. The next poem is called The Island of Zerissenheit. It's the German word that means to be literally torn apart by sorrow. The island pulls at you every moment without rest. You'll be rent into pieces, torn apart by sorrow. The only creatures that escape are birds. They say even mermaids go mad, biting the bottoms of boats in the bay. In early morning, you can see them dragging themselves to shore. Mermaids with mouths bloody, full of splinters. Mermaids blinded by their own blue hands. I came to this island after the death of a friend. Actually, she did not die. She's still alive, but I am dead to her. The island told me this is a special kind of sorrow a sorrow with a light inside that never goes out, an inverse lighthouse at the bottom of a sea. They say your hands fall off first, most likely at the shore where it's windiest. No, those are not starfish scattered on the sand. They are hands curling in on themselves, making little nests on the beach. Sometimes they scuttle away to cut off other hands, the abandoned always retreat or lash out, but never make it free. The island has three rules. Never try to warm the freshly dead. Never dismember a mermaid by moonlight. Never ever fall in love with a bird. I've come to know the difference between sadness and grief. Sadness is the knell of a bell on a buoy at night, riding the swells. Grief is a boat exactly the size and shape of the sea. I see you approaching the island, friend, but can no longer wave you in. This next poem is probably the, the one COVID poem I wrote in the winter. Um, feeling really isolated and alone in the house. It's called um, Phantasmagoria. It's quieter here in the house, fewer voices, just the occasional startle of melting snow falling from the eaves like bodies. They say all bodies are composed of gossamer films. Each time you photograph one, an actual layer of skin, so thin you can't see it, is removed and transferred to the photograph. Likewise, if you stare too long at a photo with longing in your heart, a spectral layer peels itself from the image and works its way like a worm into the eye, that sentinel organ between matter and spirit, between sleeping and waking. I wonder if that's why I dream of my dead father half in the past, half in the present, 
his artist eye wandering into a milky cloud of ectoplasm. Have I created these fibrous webs or have they created me? I've taken too many pictures of the cows in the back field. They look weak, thin, and seem to be fading into the snowpack. They say a woman in the throes of lovemaking must not look upon an image of a beast, not even a pastoral painting hanging by the bed, lest her child be born with hooves instead of hands. Inside me, a menagerie of cows. Once my lover who died in a house fire came to me in a dream. Eyelashes burned the quick, ice blue eyes bluer than before. And we talked. It's so quiet tonight, I hear the faint clatter of cow bells. Funny thing, there are no cows in the field, haven't been for years. They say our words, our actions, even our thoughts imprint on the picture gallery of the universe, a permanent record on a great canvas to be judged by a greater being. Are those stars or holes in the canvas shielding us from a terrible light? Sometimes when I'm sleeping, a voice barks at me from outside the dream, from the room I'm dreaming inside. It's so loud, I wake with my hand on my ear, no body next to mine. All things shed themselves and recollect inside us. A cow, for example, is always emitting a transparent copy of itself, fluid-like, through the air and into the eye, where it materializes into a tiny replica. In dreams, these films collide, mingle, all my dead merge into one hybrid body. There is a deep and constant lowing from the field. This one's kind of a fun one to read out loud. Um, it uses a lot of language from MMA fighting, which I'm not a big fan of, but my husband is. So I end up jotting things down and things just um, end up in my poems. And so... Uh, there's a lot of strange language in this one, but here we go. It's called Alice's MMA fight with the president. <laughs> Alice slips down a hole and falls feet first into a hot cup of entrails. She's gotten it out with the president. First a calf slicer, then an Achilles lock, and then Alice gets him in a neck crank. But the president wriggles out jumps high in the air and executes a sloppy double suplex and a rear naked choke, cutting the blood to Alice's head. She's bleeding from her nose. She's rolling around in her blood damp nightclothes. She's trying to tap out, but the refs don't see her. Where are the refs? Alice nibbles a mushroom, shrinks down, but the president just drops her in his pocket and thumbs her like a coin. Hissing with excitement, the audience hurls little cakes into the cage. When the president eats one, he grows bigger, mounts Alice, and grinds and pounds her into the mat. Alice grabs a cake, becomes a tall shovel, bonks him on the skull. The whole world shakes. They both fall flat on their sides, and she turns back into a girl. Quickly, the president gets her in a Peruvian necktie. Blood leaks from her ears. She's trying to tap out, but the refs don't see her. Where are all the refs? 
The president beats his chest and takes his victory lap. The whole stadium goes mad. They've turned into animals. They're slithering up the walls. The wearing hats with horns, flying an old flag and shouted and shouting eat or be eaten in Wonderland. <laughs> that was my political poem for the day. Um, I just have three more. This one's called How Rabbits Finally Took Over the World. Sometime after the extinction of whales, babies were born in pieces. Lungs, feet, spleens, all separate and in heaps. We dumped the remains of our babies in the woods, in the fields, and into the seas. To our dismay, the single parts arose and animated. Heads without necks rolled around trying to connect with other parts. Hearts, arms, and tongues crept over the earth in grotesque parades. Organs and limbs clumped together and survived for a time. One species sported a head, a lung, and a huge inverted foot with eight toes. It hopped around at an astonishing speed, and in inclement weather, it raised its foot above its head like an umbrella. Herds of one-eyed livers slithered over hill and dale unto the species that resembled a crab, but was really a hand with a mouth in its palm, gobbled up all the one-eyed livers. It went on like this for millions of years, hybrid devouring hybrid, until one day scores of baby ears nested inside each other to form beautiful fleshy dahlias, rabbits, all over the world thrived on the soft, sweet lobes. Rabbits of the field and of the ice and of the air grew as large as humans, were born whole and forever tender. This is a, a little bit darker one. It's called Uncanny Valleys. When you pass a mannequin in a store window and she looks exactly like your mother when she was young without hands. When you see sandbags about your size. When at night the closet door left open like a coffin. When you run up to the edge of a cliff, lie on your belly and look down on the tops of trees for the first time. When you see a mannequin that looks just like your father, but has no sex parts. When his face through warbled glass. When your whole family goes hunting for garnets and the rock face looks like blood spatter. When you have sex for the first time, look in the mirror and you are surprised you're still a girl. When something freshly torn out twitches. When dragged by your ankles down a rock face by your father. When dragged by your ankles anywhere. When no one comforts you crying in the woods and at the same time you are looking down at yourself crying in the woods. When years later you are chased through the woods by a boy you love or think you love and cry for an angel with the face of your mother. When you finally grow up and just finish fucking someone you think you love and shit pours from their mouth. When you find yourself on stage next to a stripper barking at you on all fours like a dog. When everyone is laughing. When you bare your teeth like a dog. 
when the tops of trees are beautiful for a few seconds and then they are not beautiful, not beautiful ever again. When the cigarette hanging from your father's bottom lip looks like a skinny white girl. When you're a skinny white girl and catch your reflection in dirty toilet water. When dragged down a rock face, not just a few inches, but the length of many 12-year-old girls strung together. When you dream you are being crucified on a mountain and look down on the roof of your home. When a heavy branch crashes through a tangle of branches and hits the ground with a thud and for a split second, you think it's your mother. When dust casts a green light on your veined hands and you wonder if you finally turned. When years later, peeling eggs in the kitchen, a bleeding goat startles at the afternoon you thought you were happy inside. When you can no longer tell if you were ripped from the trees or the trees were ripped from you. When a maddening fluid takes you by the ankles. When your hip bones are peeled eggs. When a bleeding goat. When the animals of the forest swivel their eyes and ears away from the direction of the cliff. I just have one more. Um, thank you again for inviting me. And um, I'm just glad to be a part of this every year. It's just so wonderful. And this last one is called Gaslighter. A friend makes me a beautiful handbag in all my favorite colors, rusty orange and chocolate polka dots embroidered with golden thread. When I stroll through town, I get a lot of compliments and feel very special. The next day, even though I didn't put anything in the bag, it starts to get heavy. When I bring it back to my friend's house, she turns it upside down and outpours a pyramid of brilliant jewels I have stolen. They're blindingly beautiful. I'm surprised because I don't remember stealing the jewels, but I'm so grateful for the beautiful bag I give them to her. After a time, the bag becomes heavy again. When my friend empties it, out falls more jewels and a severed hand. I realize it's my hand and start to scream. There, there, she says, you still got your other hand here. Let me paint your fingernails a beautiful Arctic blue. She holds my hand in hers with such tenderness, I start to cry. Of course you're right. Thank you, I say, and leave with my beautiful bag in my one beautiful hand. Year after year, I empty the bag of body parts on her couch until one day it's too heavy to lift. I drag it down the street by my teeth. I am hobbled and ugly, I say to my friend. No, she says, you are like a rare bird who flies without wings, who sings without a beak. Yes, of course, you're right, I say. It's very dark in your house to sit today, I say, and I can hardly hear you. I think I'm inside the bag. No, she says, you're sitting here right next to me. It's just your head inside the bag, and it's beautiful. Thanks again, guys. D Dina Friedman. Okay, hi. I'm Dina, and it's an honor to be here, and I'm really excited to see Kristen. It's an honor to be in a program with Kristen. Oh, wow. So I will try my best. And the first poem that I want to read is a COVID poem. 
called Alphabet Book for 2020. If A is still for Apple and all we know as true and dear, B must be for bearable no longer, and D for disorder driven by C, conditions of collapse, E for euphemism, F, fuck it all, G, go, H, hide in an apple? Yes, go hide in an apple before the fall from P, paradise plague, pontificating politicians, poisonous palaver, Q for quit, and the letters skipped, Jesus, killer, and too much time in kitchens, love lost, millions missed, not normal, nasty, never ending, OMG, Rioters rallying against reasonable regulations, smarmy sorrow, touch taken, unhinged vortex, vector, ventilator, victim, wrong, 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 X, Y is for yesterday, O, I believed, and Z for the Zs that zip from my grasp, zapping my zealous resolve to salute each day like a dazzling red apple. The next poem I'd like to read, this was the poem that was published in Meat for Tea, and it's an ekphrastic poem based on a painting called The Last Thanks by Wendy Redstar. So if you want to see the painting, you can Google it quickly and, and look it up. The Last Thanks. See no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil, keep the forks over your eyes. Yes, you can see through the tines. Yes, sometimes stains on the points. Leftover Wonder Bread if you ate Wonder Bread with a fork. But why not? We're already in the surreal. Ten skeletons at the table with forks over their eyes. Why not forked Wonder Bread? Forked corned beef hash? Forked canned beans? Forked oatmeal cream pies? Where does the food go? after it passes through the skeleton's mouth. Is that why the artist cuts a line of red check table at the ribs? No need to show chew gliding down pelvic bones. Why are the skeletons wearing construction paper headdresses? What is the red tongue-like thing between Mr. Potato Head's ears, or is it a tear? See no evil, the skeleton on the far right holds its forks by its teeth, and oh my gosh moment, oh my gosh, that girl in the center who looks shellacked like a porcelain doll, the food daintily arranged on the plate in front of her, eat no evil, craft cheese slices in plastic wrap, bologna, a yellow tub of margarine, a can of assimilated fruit, a can opener no fork, she is holding only feathers. And this next poem is from the time two years ago, about two and a half years ago, I think it's June 2019, I went to Homestead Detention Center to witness at the, um, there were children who were being kept by our government, migrant children who had been separated from their families, kept in cages. And so this is a poem about that experience being there witnessing. And it's called, I've just folded this poem into an airplane. One, to prepare for flight, I deepen the crease, rip off a piece of the corner, spit on the wing for luck. I fling the paper toward the fence, which is covered with black sheathing. 
There's a sign on the black that says, no trespassing. On the other side of the fence, boys wear orange hats. Two, will my plane make it over the border? Will one of the boys catch my plane in his orange hat? Or will the man with the biceps who stands by his police car making videos intercept my plane and kick it into the gutter? He is making videos because we are standing on ladders, holding up hearts on long sticks so the boys can see them. Three, should I send this poem to airplane makers since this used to be an Air Force base before it became a prison for children in orange hats? We used to think school was a prison because the desks were bolted to the floor. We weren't allowed to sail paper airplanes in school, but sometimes the boys got wild and threw them anyway. They got sent to the principal's office. Four, sometimes the boys wave their orange hats at us and curl their hands into the shape of a heart. Sometimes we hug and kiss in front of the bicep man to make the videos more interesting. We can't hug the children. The children can't hug each other. Five, we don't see the girls. We heard they only come out when there's no one on the ladders to hold up hearts or write poems and fold them into paper airplanes. It's always that way when it comes to treating girls. I would like to talk to the girls. I would like to talk to the bicep man making the videos. I say good morning to him, but he doesn't answer. I say good afternoon to him. He doesn't answer. Six, in school, our children have written letters to the children in the orange hats. We bring the children's letters to the bicep man. The bicep man says he can't take the letters. Everything needs to be checked for poison powder. This is why we have to fold the letters into paper airplanes and sail them over the fence. How to fold a thousand letters into paper airplanes, like a thousand paper cranes. Seven, before the launch, we make videos of the letters in case they don't arrive. They are filled with pictures of houses and dogs and funny robots. One letter says, hola amigo, I was an immigrant like you, but now I'm here, I'm happy. And this poem was written, thank God he's no longer the president, but when he was called the last president of a dark country. Another prose poem. One. The country is so dark, we can't see his shadow. The country is so dark, he can't see himself. When the cloud comes, he calls it snow because he cannot see it. Then he calls it sun. Then he calls it a witch. Two, the witches have been watching him. I am taking dancing lessons from the witches. Dancing with a witch requires a suspension of belief in walls. Dancing with him would be easier if I could get him to lean back. Three, I will not lean back. I will grow crow's wings, or perhaps I'll assume the ugliness of buzzards. Someone has to do the work. 
the sun has risen. He calls it a cloud. Tomorrow, he will call it fire. The next day, ash. Four, I could pour water on him. He might melt. He might laugh. He might call it a tsunami. The fires are burning. The soup is on the stove. Five, physicists keep investigating whether dark matter is dust. Religious people think we're made of dust. I think about that when I clean my house, which isn't often. Six, what would I like to be made of? Sugar and spice, snails and whales. My younger child no longer identifies as boy. They are made of cinnamon, dogs, hot pepper. Seven, I fear for my younger child in this dark country. Sometimes I dream about guns and poisonous plants. The soup is still on the stove. Eight, when my younger child was little, they ate pokeberries. We made them throw up and then everything was okay. Apparently it takes many pokeberries to do damage, but the mature leaves can kill you quickly. Nine, this poem no longer seems to be about the president. That's okay, since he doesn't like to read. But this poem is about darkness and poison and witches and my younger child growing up in a land of hemlock, masquerading as a harmless weed. And this last poem is called Happily Ever After. But what happened after Snow White and Cinderella married their princes? Why didn't the stepsisters say, screw this prince shit, let's go to medical school? Why didn't they become famous surgeons or famous farmers? Was any farmer famous? Johnny Appleseed? Was he known for more than wandering? Why is happiness a home, a hearth? And why does it always involve clean floors? Why not a dog? Why is the default life of a dog happy and the default life of a human not? What do dogs want? What do humans have? Can happy be a shack, a place with a swing, apples on the table? What might have convinced the queen to smash that mirror, love her thighs, her spreading belly? Why did the dwarfs need someone else to keep them tidy in their home, their hearth? their proper place. Thank you so much. I'm really thrilled to be here. Ah, Thanks so much. Next up, we have Gail Brandeis joining us from California. That's right. All the way from California. Yay. Nice to see you, Gail. It's so nice to see you, too. And I'm actually in Nevada. I'm very close to the California border, but I'm on the Nevada side of Lake Tahoe. Oh, nice. Thank you. I'm just so delighted to be here, to be amongst such amazing poets. Thank you for the poems that have been read and for those to come. I'm super excited and grateful to be amongst you all. Um, I have three pieces to read today. The first one is called White Footprints. I am learning the names of my childhood world. I learned the weed I loved, the one with smooth green leaves circled around a tall spike, a spike I used to love to run my fingers down, strip it of its little green buds, is called plantain. 
like the fruit, but not like the fruit. I learned plantain is a healing plant. If you chew it or crush it and press it to your skin, it can stop bleeding, neutralize bug bites, bring splinters to the surface. I had thought it was a Midwestern plant. When I saw it for the first time in California, years after I left Illinois, I fell to my knees, fell back into my child body. I learned it's also called white man's footprint. Learn it was brought to America by colonizers. Learn my journey west mimicked its own so many white footprints. I learned the boulders that line the shore of Lake Michigan, boulders I spent hours scrambling over, smelling their cool mineral breath. Their texture embedding itself into my palms and knees are called riprap, are there to slow erosion. Riprap feels like too silly a name, too close to riffraff, to the trip trap of goats on an ogre's bridge. These stones are majestic, the vertebrae of a giant serpent hugging the edge of the lake, the backbone of my life. I knew the name Potawatomi, now I learn Odawa, now I learn Ho-Chunk, Mananami, Sac, and Fox. Now I learn the names of people ripped from the land so I could one day call it home. I learned the name Chicago comes from the Algonquin Chicaqua, meaning striped skunk and onion, meaning pungence. I learned the shores of Chicago once reeked with wild onions and leeks and ramps. I never found members of the Allium family as a child, but can picture myself pulling them from the sand, can picture myself biting into those sulfurous bulbs, so much beneath the surface, so much that burns in the throat. And uh, this next piece is about a different kind of burning. And it was written recently when we were temporarily displaced by the Calder fire. It's called Dirty Ghosts. No smoke here, the Airbnb listing promised. Picks of white mist thick in the canyon below the rental four hours away. So we booked it. We fled there, the air at home raining ash, the air at home so sooted we woke coughing, throats raw. But the smoke followed us, the sky brown with it. No clean clouds curdled below us, just specks of the burning beloved land we had left. Dirty ghosts of bear and chipmunk, woodpecker and squirrel. Dirty ghosts of ponderosa pine and Douglas fir and quaking aspen and purple aster, muddying our lungs with home. And I'm going to finish with, it's actually an older poem of mine that I felt like reading it for some reason called Onions, written for my friend Catherine. Last Sunday, thousands of people looted three onion warehouses in Northern India, grabbing pungent globes by the armful, trailing papery bronze skins behind them like scraps of their own hands. Onions, potatoes, salt have been in short supply, have been hoarded by sellers who jack up the prices, turning staples scarce and precious, turning people into wild, hungry tongues, rioting for their human right to taste. Yesterday, TV news coverage of Hurricane Mitch showed a man stumbling up a steep, eroded slope, tightly gripping a block of onions tied together like a bale of hay. The slender amethyst bulbs gleamed like Christmas tree ornaments among their long green sprouts. The man had carried the onions for over 40 miles, so the survivors of his village could have something, anything to eat. 
The crunch, the burn of those onions must have brought them back into themselves a bit, must have reminded them that they were still alive, although their eyes looked too stunned to be stung by the sharp fumes released between their teeth. I am whirling this week, you write. I am an onion this week. We all seem to go through layers of self-knowing. I soak your words in the way an onion soaks up oil, turning translucent and tender over the flame. How lucky I am to have you as a friend. How lucky we are, how goddamn privileged to be able to go buy onions so easily. There must be 15 stores within five miles of our safe homes where we can buy them. Brown, red, white, sweet Vidalia, Hawaiian pearl for just a few dimes a pound. How lucky, almost embarrassingly fortunate we are to have the basic outer resources that give us the luxury to look inward, peeling away at our layers like so many glittering scarves, while only a few countries away, people are packed under mud like root vegetables, while across the ocean, while down the street, people are crazed for simple sustenance, onions, potatoes, salt, the first poem I wrote in college was about onions, about peeling onions. All I remember of it is this line repeated throughout the poem, where is the core? In the poem, I kept peeling and peeling, never finding what lay at the center. Although in my mind, I pictured a small pearly bud there, like an iridescent jewel or a sexual nub or a heart. A few months later, I peeled a real onion and found there was no core that the whole thing was built around a small chamber of air. It is this place I fall into when I hear about the people in India and in Nicaragua down the street, this pit that aches like raw onion heartburn. I try to claw myself out by sending what I can to relief funds, by offering mutual aid, but I still feel surrounded by stinking white walls. Your words help guide me through the slippery layers back to the world where the real work has yet to be done. Thank you. Linda Krauss. Wonderful. First of all, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm delighted to be here. And I'm so thrilled to hear these wonderful poets, to meet them virtually. And I love your poetry. So thank you so much. Uh, the poems that I'm going to read today, and I'm going to read three of them, all have to do with aspects of memory, something that has always interested me. They deal with a way perhaps that memory refracts and bends the way that we look depends upon both our age and our perspective. Um, the first two are in the current issue of Meat for Tea, and the first one deals with loss and what happens after that intense period of grief when you lose someone whom you love most dearly, and it's called house cleaning. I scrub away the memories that taunt me, suggesting that my husband is alive. I cannot hear his voice, nor feel his tender touch, but he lives in the details of my life, in the music that I crave, in the flowers of our garden, in the alignment of his chair, in the absence of his plate on a table once set for two. He hovers everywhere, 
a spirit sent from the netherworld. He will define my earthly pleasures and my pervasive sorrow as long as God wills him to remain. The second poem deals with my father, whom I have written about many times, and my father's passion for trains. It also deals with my inability as a child to understand that I was poor. Other people understood that my family was poor, but I did not. Riding the rails. In the winter, the old train station was cold, bone cold, blue cold for a little girl's hands. I clapped my white woolen mittens together to create some magic that would warm the icy wooden benches, splintered seats, and thaw the icicles hanging from the roof. My father would never mention the cold. Our Friday night dates were visits to the depot, something so special for a sheltered child. My job was to check the listings, marking departures and arrivals with the gravity of a seasoned conductor, all were accountable. He loved to shout out initials that abbreviated the train's names, so many letters that sounded the same, so many letters to sort out and catalog. When each train arrived, I prayed that I could differentiate it from the dozens of contenders and proudly, correctly call out its names. I wiggled my toes so they wouldn't freeze as we sat and waited, sat and waited for the trains to arrive and depart, arrive and depart. I thought about warm, frothy cocoa in a mug to lessen the cold, comforting chocolate chip cookies to break the routine. I never asked. Sometimes I wondered why we never bought tickets and traveled the roads, the rails. I did not understand poverty. When I travel by train today, waiting in stations that are warm and welcoming, I look for my father. We could board a train together, call out its initials, check its schedule, and ride so gloriously into oblivion. And my last poem deals with a memory that I had as an eight-year-old girl of a woman in a tea shop. I did not understand the concept, of course, of what it meant to be marginalized, but I remembered her haunted face and I finally was able to deal with her in this poem, which is called, A Cup of Tea, A Bit of Toast. Can a flutter of swallows reject one of their own? Careening wildly in the sky, they shadow their leader without regard for the weakest of the flock who flies without purpose, without grace, as if she no longer cared to live, her wings exhausted and brittle. There are flocks of silent, withdrawn women flitting about, one sits huddled in a tea shop, wrapped in a woolen shawl, her warm knitted cap pulled down over her ashen face. Her affect is sullen, her eyes dull, her glance is fleeting. Precious little bird, she is but a chestnut drab 
of a woman? When did her possibility cease, her dreams die? The melodies of familiar holiday carols swirl in the air, enchanting sweet refrains from songs of the season. She does not hear the music. She does not see the revelers in the streets dancing to celebrate the joy of Yuletide. Like a Christmas church swallow, she nibbles her toast, remembering the warmth of another time when her life held promise. She was once cherished, acknowledged. She has grown a coat of soft downy feathers necessary to ward off the cold necessary for her inevitable flight. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much, Linda. So glad you could be here. And we'll be back in just a moment. Since 1998, Stamps.com has been an indispensable tool for nearly 1 million businesses. Stamps.com brings the services of the U.S. Postal Service and UPS shipping right to your computer. Whether you're an office sending invoices, a side hustle Etsy shop, or a full-blown warehouse shipping out orders, Stamps.com will make your life easier. All you need is a computer and a standard printer. No special supplies or equipment. Within minutes, you're up and running printing official postage for any letter, any package, anywhere you want to send. And you'll get exclusive discounts on postage and shipping from USPS and UPS. Once your mail is ready, just schedule a pickup or drop it off. No traffic, no lines. Cut the confusion out of shipping with Stamps.com's new Rate Advisor tool. You can compare shipping rates and timelines to easily find the best option. Save time and money with Stamps.com. There's no risk. And with our promo code POD, get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in POD, P-O-D. That's Stamps.com, promo code POD. Stamps.com. Never go to the post office again. And thanks for listening to the Me for Teacast. And welcome back. Next up is... Marvelous, marvelous, yeah. Marissa Perez. I'm very grateful to Carolyn Zykowski for recommending you, Marissa. Thank you so much. So excited to be reading here. Um, great group of, of writers. Kristen Bach, I have read your poetry <laughs> um, and enjoyed it very much. Um, I also have three poems, um, and I would like to start with a poem that I believe is relevant um, and was written previously for this purpose, uh, relevant to some of the terrorism that is happening on the U.S.-Mexico border right now, um, and that is called The Line, and I will start with that. The weapon is the weapon is saguaros burning star, cattle tanks, a water gallon supple body buckling beneath the 27 million degree circle. The weapon is the wasteland, is surname Gonzalez, Martinez, Rodriguez, radar, sensor, ATV, the cotton mouthed German shepherd who does not know right from wrong, carcasses of running shoes, Burst, split, sank into parched dirt, soaked the browning blood from fresh half moons of pustules, clustered in herds on the calloused heel. 33 articulated bleached vertebrae under a tree, from when first carrion 
encircles 900,000th human being, soil caked, black clad, the jaws of pockets broken with Arizona and California and Texas area codes, blind, starving, cannot name the president, the date, one's own name, blinking, black, blinking back glassy daytime oases and visions of full amniotic sacs. The native which comes from God's own country does not belong in God's own country. The lone American winds himself into a crescent along the length of the prickly pear, every curvature between spider fingers, solder to sable semi-automatic, roosting, waiting giddy, for the flocks to overstep the line in the sand, the thing which does not exist, the thing which has been abstracted and purged and seized and sowed, the thing, the shining thing, the weapon. Tucson dangles itself, San Ysidro dangles itself, Nogales dangles itself on a string in front of the fever dream horizon, wavering as a bike across the road in soaking summer heat. The mirage, the mirage, the mirage. Thanks. And this next one is, was written a few years ago when my father passed. But it, well, it was written this year, but it was written for a period a few years ago. And it's uh, called Obad, Caribbean Sea, 2015. I left as the night orchestra was letting up. The musicians, thumbnail-sized tree frogs in their canopies. My vacation, in which I hoped to see where my family was born. In the airspace above American Airlines gate, so fresh with the afterbirth of dark, a blood vessel split. And then I could more clearly see the claw marks on the tarmac from the last bad earthquake to hit the island. A 6.2 magnitude on the 13th of January, two months before my father's own blood vessels split behind his brain, breaking off. The string cut between this place cracking open and the lick of the Atlantic Ocean that led to the new land where I was born, where the sheet was tugged over his face when all of us who stood around had to squint our eyes against the newborn red sun leaking through his window. And then this last poem is Pacific Coast Highway. My friend died on Wednesday. Here's what I now know. I can tell you that after dark, the headlights of an ambulance become small fists of suns. And I can tell you that a single day on the planet Venus is longer than one Earth year. If you are rooted to a planet for what it perceives to be 365 days, you will begin to notice that everything is because. A brook suggests the presence of a fish, a salmon, the presence of species. The disc of the letter O is followed by the paternal letter P. And sometimes during your time on earth, you as a multicellular organism will not know what precedes what. 
will not know if the click precedes the whir, will not know that the presence of seedlings indicates the inevitability of roots. My friend, now, bridges the gap between what was and what will occur, can fit the body like a comma in between a planet with years and a better macrocosm, where there is more than one dimension of time, where Io is tame and Venus is no longer the second brightest globe, where the bottle is uncorked, where we, here on this province in which time is an immovable dimension, who have never been blessed with the capacity for foresight, will know that the event of water rising above mountains will precede the day of judgment. Star-bellied beasts will dance between trans-Neptunian objects. My friend, help me to understand in which universe is preclusion foolproof? Thank you. Thanks, everyone. That was amazing, Marissa. Thank you so much. I'm so glad Carolyn recommended you. Very brilliant. So, next up we have the very illustrious. Well, everyone here is illustrious, right? I was yes. going to say, I was going to say quite a, quite an illustrious crew. I think I might have been reacting to the news in Texas when I packed this with mostly women. <laughs> Just wanted a bunch of a bunch of fierce women reading their words. Speaking of fierce women reading their words. Where's Jessamine? Here comes fierce woman Jessamine to read her words. <laughs> Jessamine Smythe. Hi everybody. Thank you so much, um, Elizabeth, for inviting me to read and Mark, it's great to see your face. And thank you, <laughs> you Kristen, um, Dina, Gail, Linda, and Marissa. That was some beautiful, beautiful work. And um, a couple of you I've never gotten to see live or the like Gail, I think we may have been Facebook friends forever, but I, 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 I love your hair. <laughs> um, but I also loved your work. It was, it was great to hear. So thank you to all of you. Um, I'm going to read from my not even published yet, uh, but I have the arcs in hand. I'm really excited. This book took true to the epic that it's structured on as seven years and six months, like the seven days and six nights of the hero. And it took forever to make this work. And it's one that's um, very important to me. And so I'm really glad that it's being burst into the world finally. I'm gonna start with the frontispiece. Ideally, I'm going to be able to always read this one on like one long breath with a ton of energy. I don't know how well I'm going to do today, but I'll do the best I can for you. It's called Unfamiliar. We don't live anymore in the time when there's that woman who lives way up on the mountain in that crazy ramshackle house made of equal parts barn board and found objects, surrounded by broken down stuff and overgrown wildflowers. The woman who has an animal that is of her and with her and for her and from her, but even more clearly and unnervingly not of human origin at all. And she is of it, with it, for it, and from it. We don't live in that time anymore. And so when we meet her and her familiar, we both recognize her and cannot. She isn't always a crone, though she might be, and eventually will be. 
She has high-speed internet run up the side of that mountain in fiber optic cables. She works jobs that do not require her to speak of teams or corporate family. She buys in bulk, buying time during which she does not have to come down. Her animal is always with her, and humans always know that to her, they are not as interesting. Only a few of them don't mind. We know tales of the woman whom no one could marry and call her a virgin goddess and tell about how she sicked hounds on stalkers at bathing spots. But the woman, she's likely as not to come to our beds. It's just that she won't be there in the morning because we're too loud, too extraneous to cope with when, the, when fresh from the liminal, where she is all animal and awash in relief from her human form. And besides, she has to go home and feed her familiar who wasn't very comfortable on your bed anyway. We know just enough of her still that when we meet her with her animal, we envy this thing we can see and feel but not understand. So we do our best to demolish it or hunger for it and try to stand close to the heat it throws, but know always that the flame is not of our own generation and sooner or later resent it. We do not live in a time when there is that woman, the witch, the shaman, the Inugami Mochi, and her animal with whom she is one being in two bodies. We fear them because if they are not magic or divine, they must be doing something we are not. And so we warp stories to say the Inugami was created by us, by being buried alive or tortured to death as if bonds of this kind could be forged in a crucible of anything other than unguarded, unequivocal, inhuman love that sooner or later costs everything, but sooner enduring is the key to everything. We do not live anymore in that time. And so when that woman's familiar dies, we do not know how or why it is that she does too. Because after all, when a person dies, it's not something that can happen over and over daily, hourly, riven, minute by minute, and over a human span of decades, is it? Unless you're talking myths. It's a final and singular thing, death. We know this, she knows this, the riven one whose grief we can't fathom. After all, she lives there in both the life and the death, in all times, and that is why she is not of ours and why she cannot even bleed or eat when the Inugami is gone. Her circulatory system has turned to ash, her organs shut down. That pulsing you see in the inside of her wrist, it's misleading. It's the familiar's heartbeat, not hers. Pounding drums from an echoing cavern deep, deep underground where Ereshkigal's hooks are in the walls and there are many wrong turns and where at the still and dusty center, a single sickly pomegranate tree grows stunted from uneven rocks. Landscape with dead beloved. Sometimes flame, wildfire, brush, Soil itself, even snow, even the ice burned in searing instant. Flesh from bone, bone from coherence. This rounded pile of ash, spinal cord still articulated. 
I was looking for another one. Um, this book is a meditation on grief and on the madness of grief and the hero's mad determination to walk west and kill death rather than accept mortality. And that quest, of course, is one that Gilgamesh the king fails to do and that the narrator of this book fails to do. And um, in those meditations, a lot of the poems are, are night walk with dead beloved, landscape with dead beloved, songs for the dead beloved. And the book itself is structured as the epic. It's full of fragments like the cuneiform tablets that are, you know, a flake of rock came off. And so you lose whole stanzas or whole sections of the story and you have to fill those cesuras yourself. I hope that I created a book that creates an emotional experience that is like reading the Epic of Gilgamesh. Um, Tablet 8 in particular was what I used for a model. But there is some tiny bit of uh, relief in the book, I think, some humor and uh, some moments of joy and the, the living familiar and the living beloved. This one is not from the section where the beloved is alive, but um, from the part of the book where the narrator has arrived in the West and is standing at the gate of grief. Night walk. Yeah, so the sadness comes around that bend in the Mamquam, full of silt and glacial. All I need is that low sliver moon and a man who can stand a little emergency. Better yet, some Nina Simone and the dead returned. I don't recall giving permission anyway, which makes it criminal homicide or at least theft. He's calling, you know, under that moon and I can't get to him. In my empty hands, I have two real things the musculature of joy, his last breath. And I'm gonna read just one more prose poem. This is called Lazarus and Mud Season. Granular now, this ice, this temperature differential, this oblique control. If I had a god, she would be that nervous flicker exploding from thawing hay and iced crocus. She would be the question how now so granular, the big parts answered, each blade green, iced, and stymied. If I had a god, he would be the scent of vetiver and campfire, molecular traces in my body, granular now in the icy question why, left hanging in ground-clinging clouds of snowmelt, crocus buds under glass. I dream of stags, vast antlered, inscrutable, the muscled shoulders of Percherons. Where am I? The question that changes before it's answered. Some land you occupy, some occupies you. Eagles and seals duck torrential rain. Witch's hair 30 meters long outlasts all of us. Symbiotic green are skeletons. It's the salmon bones, you know, that make the trees so big. Calcium, magnesium, oily E, ibuprofen ubiquitous and the half-life of flexoril, a molecular known, certain as faith. 
Fire overcomes ice. Ice extinguishes where you are, depends on where you've been, shot from this field in a panic of flight. Nerve connections gather in low branches of muscle and bone. A walking bear pulls a salmon from the Mamquem River, distant. Sucked bones left on altar of root. This body drifts in uncertain flow. A cottonwood snags, fallen giant, glacier pushed. Herons nest there, sharp-eyed and still. The air pours linden. Pollen makes end papers, chartreuse and brick pools. Ice sheathed, spring willows try so hard. Nerve connections fire, a peregrine sails, the fastest creature on earth. To be so fast, aglow with sap. Where are you going? Each next thing, muscle snagged on titanium bone. It still hurts, you know, resurrection. Just less than what came before. Thank you very much. Tommy Twilight. So, all right. So we're going to, Sandra uh, is nicely uh, joining, going to join me on a song, um, a Leonard Cohen song that uh, it was just his birthday this past week. He would have been 87 years old. And I was lucky enough to see him in concert about, oh, I don't know. He was in their early 70s at the time down in Connecticut. And my wife said it was the best concert she'd ever been to. And she doesn't even, not even really into his music, but I certainly am. So we have a little song that we worked up then. I've got a couple of some poems for you. And uh, it's a great thing to be a part of this 100,000 Poets for Change. I've done it for several years and I'm glad to do it again. So here we go. Ready? I loved you in the morning Kisses deep and warm Your hair on the pillow Like a sleepy golden storm Yes, many have loved before us I know that we are not new In city and in forest They smile like me and you It's come to distances Both of us must try Eyes are soft with sorrow. Hey, that's no way to say goodbye. I'm looking for another as I wander in my time. One with me to the corner, steps will always rise. Oh, 
like a sleepy golden star. Yes, many have loved before us. I know that we are not new in city and in forest. They smile at me and you. Now it's come to distances. Both of us must try. Your eyes are soft with sorrow. That's no way to say I tripped over a rock. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Sandra. Thank you, Tommy. Thank you, Sandra, so much. And standing in the hot sun here, we were sweating. The sweat was running down my back, running down my pants. It was just incredible. So, and all this technical stuff. But uh, we did it. So I'm glad. So I got a couple pieces for you I'm going to do. And uh, hope you like it. So um, this one goes out. War is a stu stupid thing. It still goes on. We just got out of one that was going for 20 years, and uh, I'm sure we'll be back in another one in five minutes. So I don't think we've been out of war since World War II. So this goes out to all the soldiers everywhere, down in the dirt, and uh, just for you. Gun. Red buckets bleeding, silver X, helmet gun, red buckets bleeding, the hammer clenched face. Harry Claus, smooth, pounding on some bluegrass, flounder in the maze.
All right. That's uh, Pain is to Win is the name of that one. I got a, I got one for you, I think, here. Let's see. This one's a single drop of rain. So, and... Uh, a single drop of rain cannot save the earth. It falls from the sky with a heartbeat of dust strikes a single grain of sand like holy water and God can't save us can only save ourselves and that is the plan so maybe you don't say God maybe you say Jesus, or Zeus, or Yahweh, or Great Spirit, or whatever. And maybe you pray, or don't pray, or meditate on the meaning of home. Home. Did you know that the ocean covers 78% of the earth? So if the ocean could vote, who would be president? Who would be president? Listen to the whale's song, the whale's lament, the whale's blues, and ask yourself, what have the whales ever done for you as they light your lamps? and lubricate your clock springs. But this is not some Star Trek movie with William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy. It's the Kohanim fated to save us from ourselves. No, this is now when paradise is burning with the flash of 393 million guns in a nation of 367 million people, and they are building a wall with bricks made of stone and blood and bone. So thoughts and prayers for the victims, thoughts and prayers for the greatest nation on earth, the all-time greatest in incarceration, military might. Thoughts and prayers for the kids in dog kennels and the sick bankrupted and dying for the cost of care. Thoughts and prayers for the fearful and anxious, the man-made virus. We all know it's just business. It's just business. Business is business. That's what old Silent Cal said, who inspired Ronnie Reagan and walked these streets in this city. The business of America is business. 
but he wasn't talking about you, Sean Gunderson. He wasn't talking about you, mom and pop. He wasn't talking about you, Main Street, USA, but I am talking to you right now. I'm screaming into the wind, standing on the hill for all it's worth and cranking up some Louis Armstrong, singing what a wonderful world because there is hope because you are here, all you single drops of rain, all you grains of sand, all you people who love and care for each other on this old earth, and that is the plan. It's up to us. Nice. I was hoping that was the end. That was the ending. <laughs> So, got one more for you. I got it in my back pocket. I got a G. Yeah. I got me a G harmonica. I'm going to tell you a little story about, about my life. I tell a life story here. This is an ode to a fire helmet. So here we go. my career I lost the first one at a garage fire we were working our way in when something blew up and knocked me on my ass they found that helmet underneath the ruin of that garage Weeks later, it came back to me. I was sitting at the station, wondering where my helmet went. It was pretty messed up. So they gave me a new helmet. That was my second helmet. It was black because black is back and black is the color that the private swear, otherwise known as firefighters. The one that was damaged, I kept as a souvenir. My second helmet, black. I used it for years. It got beat up, but it was still in service. 
and I was in service too. But then I made captain. They gave me a, something new. They gave me a red helmet. Because captains wear red helmets. So that was my third helmet. It was a hand-me-down from another captain who moved up the chain to deputy chief. The chiefs wear white helmets because they never get dirty. That's right, they don't go in. The captains go in and they lead the charge and the firefighters come with them and they say, come on boys, let's go. And that's what we do. But it saved my life, that third helmet. It's nice. It's made out of leather. Red leather, baby. Red leather. That's what it was. We were over in East Hampton. And uh, we were working our way through it. We put the fire out. We were doing something called overhaul. When you overhaul, you take things apart to make sure the fire isn't burning any further. And so we were pulling down a ceiling. One of the guys hooked it was in an old mill building and he hooked one of these big fluorescent lights or these eight foot long fluorescent light fixtures with eight foot freaking tubes in it. And he yanked it and he pulled it down and it swung down and it hit me right in the top of the head. Drove me to the floor like a tent peg. And they said, Captain, are you okay? I said, well, yeah, I'm okay. But my helmet wasn't okay. Went back to the station. Went back to the station. The chief saw the helmet. What's wrong with your helmet? I said, this helmet saved my life. I'm going to keep wearing it. He says, no, you can't wear that helmet. It's damaged. That helmet is damaged. It's got a big chunk out of it. Like the size of your thumb. But I order you to take it out of service and go get a new helmet. That was my fourth helmet. I wore that the rest of my career. It wasn't leather, some kind of plastic polycarbonate like the first two, but I got quite a few good years of service for it. Now it's hanging up on a hook in my back porch because I'm retired, baby. I'm done. I don't have to do that no more. But I loved it while it lasted because it was good. So if you get blown up or hit in the head, it's a goddamn good thing you're wearing your helmet. Thank you. John Gunderson backing me up. That's it for us, baby. So I don't know if Tommy and Sean, you guys can hear us, but thank you so much. Thanks so much. Thanks everyone for sticking around. All technical difficulties and sound difficulties were mostly resolved within the limits of what Zoom is capable. Tommy, thank you so much for being our featured reader. Gundy, thank you so much. For, 
<laughs> struggling through whatever technical hurdles. Sandra, thank you. So thank you. Hi. Yay. So everyone, don't forget that um, this is all part of the 100,000 Poets, Artists and Musicians for Change. And that is at 100tpc.org. We'll put the... The link is actually in the overview of the Facebook Live video. I, I actually sent it to everyone when I emailed them, yeah. too. But, but this is also for anybody listening or watching. Well, those people. Yeah, not, not just the participants. <laughs> it feels like we're just talking just, just the participants. I, I thought it was just exclusive. There's a whole world. It's a small exclusive club. <laughs> Virtual does have its pitfalls and Zoom crashes and everything else, but it also has its benefits. That's what it sure does. I hope we can keep some of those. If we ever get to a past pandemic stage, I hope we can keep some of the accessibility that we got through Zoom. Yes. Yeah. Me too. Yeah. Me too. It's a big deal. Thank you to everyone. And Elizabeth, this was great. Thank you. Oh, I'm so glad you could join. So nice to be able to open this up to people from too far away to drive here and participate. Yeah, thank you so much for including me. I had a wonderful time listening to everyone and Yay. just hanging out with you all. Yeah, very, very wonderful. It was so good. Well, I think we're going to, with much gratitude, say good night. Big hugs and thanks to the two of you for always holding up artists and the arts and for being such a force for good in the Valley. We love you. Uh, here, here. We love you guys too. And from far away, I'll echo that. And me Thank too. You. Amen for all the work. Thank you, everybody. Everybody, make sure you check out Gundy's Open Mic Night right now. I think they're still doing it live at JJ's Tavern in Florence. Like but we'll see how long that lasts. They did it virtually for a long time, and it was really great. Seven weeks. What, what's that one more time, Gundy? 67 weeks. 67 weeks, yeah. 67 weeks on Facebook. Wow. Yeah. That's something. That's I believe it's one of Dante's layers of hell, actually. <laughs> it's 67 weeks of Facebook. It was amazing, though. Do you still do it? Are you still at JJ's Tavern? We are still at JJ's Tavern, yeah. Sweet. Until they tell us we can't. Knock on wood, yeah. fingers crossed. No, yeah, what? knock on wood, fingers crossed. Ah! Stay masked. Right. Stay masked, get vaxxed. That's what we do. Yep, that's what we do. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Love you all. Thank you, everybody. Bye. Bye, everybody. Thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs> so nice to see everyone. Thank you, everyone. So. Isn't thanks, that fabulous? Thanks for sticking around. How brilliant are those writers? If you noticed a predominance of women, I don't know. I, I think, you know, with Texas and a bunch of other things, I'm just feeling like uplifting women's voices any chance I get. I'm down with that. I agree. You guys should, that are local, should put December 4th on your calendar because we have another Cirque coming up. Yeah, we're doing it in person again. The last one went so well. Everybody was so cool. and Vaxxed and masked. Yep, as we, we ask that you be vaccinated and we ask, actually, the city of East Hampton requires that if you're indoors and you're not eating or drinking that you wear a mask. Um, we are doing it again at Abandoned Building Brewery, which is right next door to my studio where we have had them in the past, but there's a little more elbow room at the brewery. So it's a, right now with things being what they are and the numbers up in the air, it's a safe thing to do. So we get, and there's good beer. Yeah. We get, well, we get to take over their small tap room for the spoken word and the short films and, uh, possibly some comedy this time around. Yeah. Speaking of the short films, Ezra Pryor has a film. 
he made. And Ezra Pryor will also be doing our stand-up comedy. And ex-temper and toxic friends will be rocking the house. Yes. And so after short films and spoken word, we actually get to go over to the larger tap room. And it's a really nice sounding room for live music I've been discovering. So that'll be really fun. So we hope to see you December 4th if you are in the area. Uh, If you're not... There may be uh, excerpts from that circ in a future podcast. Because we probably. Yeah. So thanks again for sticking around. We will catch you in a couple weeks. Sayonara. The Meat for Tea cast is produced by Elizabeth McDuffie and Meat for Tea The Valley Review. Mixed by Mark Allen Miller at Zone Lab, East Hampton, Massachusetts. Visit Meat for Tea at www.meatfortea.com please consider going to anchor.fm to make a contribution through our contribution page. You can reach us through meetforteacast at gmail.com or you can leave a voice message at anchor.fm forward slash meetforteacast. We welcome suggestions for contents for the Meet for Tea cast. If you've attended a Meet for Tea Cirque and want to hear from one of the bands or one of the spoken word contributors, please let us know. All portions are copyright Meat for Tea and their respective holders. Vote for Meat for Tea on your favorite podcast app. Follow us on Twitter at Elizabeth. Meat for Tea on Instagram. And on the Meat for Tea and Meat for Tea cast Facebook pages. Meat for Tea is available everywhere you get your favorite podcasts.